Well, as Bob Dylan says, man gave names to all the animals in the beginning, in the beginning. Molly, could you hand me your bulletin? So welcome to Emmaus Way. We've had people upstairs in uh, training or sessions to learn more about working with our kids and to learn more about doing circles at Emmaus Way. And so those folks are going to be percolating back downstairs. But we're going to try and start on time. And this is our new rhythm that we're now three weeks into uh, and move into the second half of our time together this evening. In this third week of talking about creation, we're moving towards the second creation narrative, Genesis 2. And to take us further into that, we have this quote from Naomi Klein to call us together tonight. When we marvel at that blue marble in all its delicacy and frailty and resolve to save the planet, we cast ourselves in a very specific role. That role is of a parent, the parent of the earth, but the opposite is the case. It's we, the humans, who are fragile and vulnerable, and the earth that is hardy and powerful, and it holds us in its hands. In pragmatic terms, our challenge is less to save the earth from ourselves and more to save ourselves from an earth that, if pushed too far, has ample power to rock, burn, and shake us off completely. That knowledge should inform all we do. So, as those words are sending us the direction of, we spent a lot of time, we've, in, our, in our first week, we sort of were reflecting on what a creation narrative has to offer. Um, this community, or any community, last week we delved specifically with a homily from Molly into that first creation narrative that we're given in Genesis. And this week really takes us further into, I think, the wrestling that is so central in that call to gather, this idea that we as humans have been given in this story some kind of place that's unique um, and some kind of responsibility that's specific. And how have we done that? How have we used that role and how badly? And so, yeah, just acknowledging that we carry all that with us and that's a conversation we're going to delve further into tonight. Um, I want to, before we get to announcements, let's do this community song, Rudy. You're going you're gonna to be upstairs with the kids. I forget which saint you have made it to this week. We're doing St. Augustine. We're not going, we're not going kids and we'll dismiss you to go outside for a bit but then upstairs to talk about St. Augustine. I want to see Brandon sneak out to go and catch that St. Augustine conversation. I know he wants to. No. Okay. Yeah. When we were passing out when Rudy was setting her calendar, Mona's going to be upstairs with the kids I think on the 29th and you got to choose and you didn't choose St. Augustine. You did not, so anyway. Some people want to talk about Augustine more than others. That's one of the things I've learned in life. So off go the kids. Uh, announcements, things that are happening in this community and around and about Durham. Um, we'll just sort of recap that, yeah, in this week three, 
we're sort of taking on this new rhythm of six-week seasons, and so we're now halfway through that. We're planning towards, uh, I think, next week, Mona, who's releasing an album. Are you actually releasing it on Sunday? How about that? So Mona is officially releasing her album her, on Sunday, and I think it's going to feature prominently in our gathering next week. So we're excited about that. The 29th, we'll be back in circle uh, together. Uh, on a topic around creation, and then the, the six will be sort of back into a, this t- typical dialogue format. And in the first half, um, things that are still going on next week, we're going to have a party. Molly, tell me about our party. We're having a party for Rody. Next Sunday is Rody's last um, Sunday with us. Um, and so it's just me a time to celebrate and thank Rody for all she has meant and continues to mean to our community. So please come. Um, she really is. She's here Sunday. She's finishing packing Monday and is leaving at like 6 a.m. on Tuesday. So next Sunday really is the last time to see Rhodey before she goes to Dallas. So um, everyone be there, but especially, yeah, I think the kids probably especially want to tell Rhodey bye. Um, so there will be some activities uh, that we're still figuring out. But um, <laughs> um, so that's next Sunday at four. And then the following Sunday, first half, so four to five, um, we're going to have again the second opportunity for folks that couldn't make it today. It's kind of an odd announcement, but yeah, tell somebody that wasn't in the circle facilitation uh, session today that they can still come next week um, and learn, or sorry, the 29th and learn more about that. Um, and then on the sixth, a reminder that. For, we're going to, for the first time, what's going to be a normal rhythm for us on the sixth week is spend the hour of that first half in stations together around the theme of creation. So they're just talking us through ways that we are taking on of being together in a new way this fall. Um, yeah, another thing that's happening in Durham, I know Pride Week and Weekend is coming up. Molly's going to talk about that. Not next weekend, but the following, the last weekend in September is Pride. Um, there are two, there's an interfaith um, pride worship service at Eno Unitarian uh, at 7 p.m. on that Friday night. All are welcome. Um, I hope to be there. On that Saturday at 11 a.m., like last year, Calvary and Emmaus Way will be handing out water to those that are marching in the pride parade. It was a lot of fun last year um, and deeply appreciated by many who are very hot. Um, so if you want to hand out water, you can come for as little or for as long as you're able. Show up at the corner of Broad and Green Street in Durham. Um, and like, really if you arrive at 11, that's fine. But like a little bit before 11 or right at 11, um, and we will hand out water to those marching in the parade. Um, and then on that Sunday, Calvary, United Methodist and Duke Memorial at Duke Memorial are having um, a Christian worship service called Clearly Beloved um, that Sunday at 530 um, and everyone is welcome to that as well. Yes, we already got on to Chris for the time of that service. We're not expecting it to be at 530 but we thought it was going to be at 7 but that's okay. So happy for you to go to that as well. Yes. Um, you have choices. And then if you want a third worship service, there's a third worship service ever, uh, on actually that Saturday at Duke Chapel, um, and it is called Drag Liturgy. Um, so anyway, those are three ways to gather and worship, and as well as hand out water. So, yeah. yeah. And the last thing I'll say announcement-wise is that there is an upcoming Durham Can action this week that... I will not be able to come to, but I hope some of my sweet people can. Durham Can's been organizing at Hoover Road, which is with a far flung, and I think based on Can's organizing, perhaps the less, the least well tended of Durham Housing Authority's properties. Been doing organizing in that community and are doing a sort of accountability action with DHA officials to follow up on commitments that have been made for, yeah, repairs and things like that. So Can is looking for. Representatives. Yeah, it's on Thursday, the 19th, at 6 p.m. We'll be moving out of our Charlotte apartment that night, so I will not be there as well. But 6 p.m., Hoover Road in the rec center, Emmaus Way's committed five. 
I know two people that can come. So if you're able, it'd be a really important action to be able to be there for Thanks. So with that, I'll invite up Mona, who we're really glad to have co-traveling with us. She's pulled Charles in, and always good to see Charles back. And I will acknowledge on just from Jeff's behalf, that we have not chosen to do this week Bob Dylan's Man Gave Names to All the Animals in the beginning. But there are some other songs that are equally valid to the conversation that we're going to hear.
Thanks so much, Mona and Charles. Um, it's so good to be back with you all this week. Um, you all are much lovelier to look at and be in conversation with than the Duke ER when my kidneys were upset last weekend. Um, but glad that you all, from what I hear, had a pretty invigorating conversation on the first um, creation account found in Genesis 1. And tonight we're going to dive into Genesis 2, um, the creation account I struggle with a bit more, um, but looking forward to really dialoguing about that with you all. But before we get into that, let's pass the peace. Um, greet someone that you don't know. Um, also another just familiar tidbit, if you for some reason are not on the weekly or the EUA social, we announced a lot of things. And with the new rhythm, there are lots of just things to keep in the front of our mind. So if you aren't receiving those emails and would like to, please fill out a yellow card on the back just so you can keep up electronically with the rhythm of our community. Um, let's pass the peace of Christ to one another, grab some water or coffee or hot tea, and then we'll gather back together in just a little bit. All right, if everyone would start making their way back um, toward the middle, and we'll get going. Um, and so, like I mentioned, of the two creation accounts, I think I've struggled or have more angsty feelings about this one more than the first one. I'm sure for some of you that is reverse, or maybe you just don't like either, which is also fine. Um, but I think part of it is how women um, are interpreted in this text that I really struggle with it and don't enjoy. And the older I've gotten, um, the more uncomfortable I've become in how central and centered humanity is in this narrative and everything else kind of takes a back seat and how that centeredness um, has, I think, wreaked havoc on creation, but I think also has wreaked some havoc within ourselves um, and within humanity. But we have two creation narratives in the Old Testament, and so we can't ignore this one as we're talking about creation. And as I was wrestling with it and wondering, like, oh gosh, what does a dialogue look like tonight coming off of last week's homily and conversation I wondered what would happen if we read the text and then we just sort of asked kind of six-ish or so questions, um, but, after, but each question is kind of like a different sliver or a different lens with which to think about the text um, and talk about it of what might that mean, what then is here if that is the emphasis or if that's the frame. Um, and that's kind of how I thought we would work our way through the text. And if there's time at the end, um, if there is a f lens, a way in which you're wanting to think about and talk about this text, um, yeah, happy for you all to throw out one that might be missed. But first, um, let's be reminded of this text that perhaps for many of us, we know quite well, but for some of us we may not, or perhaps sometimes with texts that we think we know, we remember it one way, um, and actually what is said is slightly different. So would someone read Genesis 2, 4 through 25 for us? In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet on the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a, <coughs> but a stream would rise from the earth, and, and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God entered the garden of Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. 
The name of the first is Kishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The, next, the name of the second river is Gimon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows to the east of Assyria. And then the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of any tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal on the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one should be called woman, for out of the man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, but were not ashamed. Thanks so much, Caleb. So if this, what was just read, were all we knew about God, about humanity, and about creation, what would we know? If this text were all we knew about God, about humanity, about creation, what would we know? What do we find here? God is a gardener. God is a gardener, yeah. Man is an egomaniac. Man is an egomaniac, yeah. Bodies aren't something to be ashamed of. God doesn't want us to be alone. Yeah, right? Like this tree that you aren't supposed to touch is right in the middle. What's that about? Yeah. But obviously there's something there that we aren't to have. Yeah. I also get the impression that God makes plans and then revises them. Yes. Yeah. God makes plans and then revises them in this text, for sure. It also seems like these rivers are pretty important and significant. Right? The four rivers. Anything else? This were all we knew about God, humanity, and creation. What would we know? Apparently gold's good. Gold's good, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> apparently so. That is true. God, God is very active. God causes rain to fall. Yeah. It's, yeah. God is in, involved in the everyday. Yeah. Kind of God of being intimately involved and active in the text. Well, kind of to, to, to riff on the rivers thing, like this places the Middle East as the origin of humanity in a way that the first creation narrative doesn't. Does not, yeah. yeah. God also puts a lot of responsibility with people, like he collaborates with them. You know, he brought them out of this to So, a bit of background on kind of the history of this text. So, last week, um, the first creation story comes from the priestly account, right, which was written during 
they believe the Babylonian exile to the Israelites. But this account happens much earlier in um, the Davidic dynasty when Israel was doing all right and pretty sovereign um, and kind of, yeah, a sense of ruling was in the air. And as mentioned, because of that, different critical scholars think that that is perhaps why humanity takes center stage here, right? Humanity being in charge, created first, having this deep responsibility for creation um, after God created, right, Eden. But what's interesting when you look at both the first creation narrative of the priestly account, and this one out of the Yahwist source, is that scholars say that the writers were trying to tell a narrative of creation, of God's creative work, for it to be relevant to the context of those to whom they were writing, using language and imagery that would be familiar and applicable that the people hearing it then, right, like sooner than when we're reading it, would have a better sense or understanding of maybe who this God is and what perhaps our very small location within creation is all about. But I'm curious that given our context our language, our imagery, what might be a familiar or an applicable way to narrate this story, Genesis 2, in the here and now, or sort of how it's been understood? We can sort of take Luke's, we can start with man sort of being an egomaniac, right, if we wanted but what would be language that you all would give this story and how it's understood and how it's been understood through centuries in the here and now? How is it used? Women are supporting roles for men. Yeah, women are supporting roles for men, yep, for sure. Yeah, it goes pretty quickly from Woman to wife. Woman to wife, yeah. Um, it's pretty much why she's created, right? Yeah. Hmm. Naming as a form of domination. Naming as a form of domination, yeah. Rather than naming, yeah, as understood as like being interrelated and in a relationship with. necessarily in my Sunday school classes that we could be naked and unashamed, right? <laughs> like there was, a, there was a lot of shame around body, and especially as women, right? Bodies and like, oh yeah, it's a whole other dialogue on modesty culture. But, um, but yeah, so I'm curious that how might our narration of this specific creation story and really some of these abusive I would say 
yeah, ways of understanding that have made it, just have interwoven themselves into our living and this creation and the earth as it is now. How might this story change or look different if we took seriously that the Hebrew, what Jeff was getting at earlier, reveals something pretty remarkable about the connection of humanity and the earth, right? So Adam, which doesn't mean man, translated it's earthling. I really love Phyllis Tribal talks about, it's like when God scooped up dirt and breathed life into this dirt. She says to imagine it like a clay figure, that that's really probably what, right? Like that that, this image of like clay. But that earthling, Adam, Hebrew, is created from Adamah, the earth. So the language itself, right, like so interwoven and connected, let alone that the text says we were, Adam was created from dirt. Creation is we are one, right? If you took that part seriously. So if we understood ourselves to be one substance with creation, with the earth, how might that shift our understanding of this narrative? How might that change how we live our day-to-day life and engage um, with the earth from which we come? If we truly believed The Lord commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden. You'd all be vegans. You'd all be vegans? Yeah. What else? How might it shift if we really, like, <coughs> took to heart that dirt, we and dirt are, like, the same. The same stuff. Well, there's a sense of equality. Equality. All things. And with that, I think, comes kinship also, because we're made from the same stuff. So relationship yeah. is centered as the connective. Rather than dominion. Right. Yeah. Relationship over dominion, if we really took that seriously. And I know that the naming thing has been read mm-hmm. as dominion, but like as someone who's given names to three humans, <laughs> yeah. like... That's not how I saw it. Yeah. Like, it was deep responsibility. And, like, I knew these kids were going to be stuck with these names unless they went through some huge legal process for the rest of their lives, you know? And so it was like a big responsibility to them and a meaningful exercise of connection rather than, like, I'm putting my stamp that you belong to me and Mm -hmm. you have to. Say. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that the naming thing necessarily has to be read the way that it has traditionally been read. Yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah. And what does it mean, right? Like, to even in naming or um, of knowing something so intimately, right? that, yeah, rather than dominion in a relationship and call someone a name, or even thinking about like nicknames or how we um, are so intimately and being in such relationship with someone um, to even know and give space for there to be renaming, right? Like I think that that gets back to relationship. Any other thoughts on how our understanding of this text would shift profoundly if we took this whole dirt I think we would change our some of our agricultural mm-hmm. um, industry processes and how we just uh, <clears throat> how we can do, don't value soil yeah. and soil health that we yeah. basically are tossing chemicals into it and just let yeah. it run off and um, actually destroy the soil by our practices. Mm-hmm. And so we would take, do something that's more um, integrated and actually builds up mm-hmm. the soil. Yeah, there's an anthropology that it's, it's always this text that when I've 
been, the interpretation has been interested in the anthropology of this text. Mm -hmm. And if this text becomes about something other than anthropology, which is anthropology that finds itself into yeah. relationship with all things, mm -hmm. then the kind of hierarchies that come out of that male-female reading, mm -hmm. the kind of hierarchies that come out of that man-nature reading, all of a sudden, like, those are defined. Yeah, they are. They are, they are. Um, I also find... Um, and perhaps, too, this is me, because I really, a lot of things about process theology really resonate. But I think whenever you start with, um, and to Caleb, what he was saying earlier, this notion of humanity coming from dirt and this being interwoven and that we are constantly in process, dirt and humanity and dirt and God, um, just the freedom and liberation that even comes with our understanding of who God is or who God could be, right? Like whenever it's not, because what we don't have in this text, right, is like God is not removed, right? God is this very active, present gardener, creator, as Caleb said, right? Like kind of figuring it out on the fly, really, you know? Like um, it's not like God in this story we can't 100% say that God in the story knew, right, when he was beginning exactly like where things were gonna end up. There's a lot of space for a God that changes and that a God, and a God that is moved, right, kind of is moved by seeing maybe this earthling that I have created needs to be in relationship not only with the earth, but with another earthling. Um, and I think that I don't read a, a God of dominion in this text per se. But maybe you do, which is just fine. But how might that lens or understanding even thinking about like intimate relationship of God being an intimate relationship with creation, of God changing, of God being movable. How might that understanding of God at the beginning of creation shape our understanding of how we are to engage in this creation in the here and now, and how we are to engage a God that is, that draws near and is ever creating, but also that might change. What does that have to offer us and our understanding? Well, I think it leaves room for prayer mm -hmm. and for petitioning God. Um, it also gives me hope that God knows my intimate needs and longings and desires and wants the best for me. It's true, Luke, and it's something in reading um, this text and this week and in um, thinking about the, on Friday, right, the big climate strike and the walkout, and if you want to join, there's one in Chapel Hill and there's one in Greensboro on Friday um, that I found, but, um, and I do deeply believe in a God that is ever present and is a part of these strikes and these climate changes, right? Like working, somehow working and being a part of 
telling, right, the world, we have to start taking this really seriously, like, oh, years ago, but we've gotta start now. But as I was reading, though, too, if you really open yourself up to a changing God, I had this moment of like, oh gosh, what if, if we, if we take this text seriously in that train of thought, like, what if God's not totally sure how this is all gonna, right, work out? Um, but then, but I do, right? But I do, do have this deep hope that, like, what if it is really on, but like, what if, what does it mean for we humanity to start taking seriously that we come from the dirt, right? Like maybe God's just tired of like being like, I have told you all again and again and again that you are intimately connected and in relationship and interwoven and like we just keep acting like it doesn't matter. But I still deeply hope and believe that God is present at these strikes, and that, yeah, but anyway, all I have to say, I resonated. Maybe I didn't articulate it as starkly, but I had a moment. So, we, from this text, know that God is intimately interwoven with Adam and with Eve, she hasn't been named Eve yet, but with humanity and with all of creation, we also know in this text that he, Adam is given a partner, a helper. But um, how many have heard, right, like women are, this text proves women are submissive, right? Men are the cream of the crop. Um, but I really love that Phyllis Tribble, she says, and she's being sort of sarcastic about it, but she says, you know, in Genesis, how quickly we forget that in Genesis 1, Humanity was the peak, right, kind of the culminating piece of creation at the end. And at Genesis 2, it's woman that's the culminating peak of creation. But we think it's the Adam. Um, No, right? I mean, she was made, like, yeah, a piece of Adam's rib. But I think what's interesting is that how a lot of scholars actually say whenever you read the text, right, which in part makes it troubling at how centered humanity is, but also that it begins with the creation of man and ends with the creation of woman. And so that the fact that they're like paralleling, like parallel, that both have equal emphasis in the text. And so all of our understanding of like patriarchy, of women being submissive, of men being greater, women being, right, like, less than merely a rib, that all of that um, does not come until much later, and that none of that is here and is a piece of the text. That really, when you look at the Hebrew, ezer is the word that's used here, which means helper, and it's actually the same as the only other time that Ezer is used is whenever it's talking about God as helper, as the divine as being intimate helper in relationship to creation and humanity. And so what does it mean, kind of going even back to SK at the beginning, if we were to take seriously, like not this paternalistic helper, but like what does it mean if we were to take women and men as co-creators alongside God, as co-equals with one another, as co-partners, as co-helpers. From this text forward, how might that reshape our engagement with just how we're in relationship to one another in creation, both within our own lives, but also more broadly. Like if people read this text and didn't see hierarchy, but saw co-equal relationship, how might that shape our engagement? 
or perhaps better question is, how might you take that truth and go share it with a family member of yours that does not read this text like that? What might that conversation look like? Or how might that begin to shift the broader conversation around being co-equal, co-partners? Uh, I have a lot of ideas flowing, but for that specifically, the the end point, right? The bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the idea of one fleshness is sort of, um, I don't know, I was also thinking about in Genesis 1 when it it really says, you know, when God created them, right? Mm -hmm. There's just sort of a queerness in both texts that, like, we're falling into, like, it's very easy, I think, to fall into the binary about the male, the female, the male, the female, but both texts kind of have this, yeah. I mean, what was Adam before there was, Yeah. what, uh, there's no sense yeah. that Adam's specifically male. Or, not at all, right? Uh, and the whole even notion of an earthling is not male yeah. or female, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, and so the, the themness of, of chapter one and then and then the, the one fleshness of, of this, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's interesting in terms of the question how we think it today. I think we, we all so easily map it directly into male, female, binaries. And, and there is some binary going on here, but there's also a lot of uh, themness or right. fleshness. And it sort of makes me wonder, too, if we were able to get off that binary, right, then we would better able perhaps be able to get off the binary of like humanity and then the rest, right? Like the rest of creation or all these binaries that we're placing. Well, so that connects, yeah, that's the other thing that I've been kind of, that's been kind of going through my mind is the breath of life. So there, that's in one and two, right? But we don't read it as breath in English, we read it as spirit, but it's yeah. ruach, it's the same word, yeah. right? So the spirit hovering and doing this cosmic work is the same spirit that's animating the dirt. And it's just interesting when Adam asks this question, I need a helper, it's not like, okay, I'm gonna create the helper. Then there's, it starts to narrate the creation of animals with the same process of, of taking the ground and then, and then creating different types of animals. So there's something there about continuity too, yeah. or one fleshness there too, um, that's, um, that, that, that I think speaks to what you're saying about also not being so binary about humanity and animals. What, what do you think, we'll end on this question, this oneness, which really is interwoven throughout, oneness of humanity with the rest of creation, oneness of creation to God, oneness of God, right, humanity, dirt. What might our lives, your day-to-day, start looking like if we actually thought that that was true and that that was the point of this narrative to remind us of our oneness with everything from the the dust to the ruah, the very spirit that is giving us life. What might your living, our living, how might that be different? I wonder what it would do to our sense of uh, competition, comparison. Mm-hmm. I would hope that it would divest us of that. Mm-hmm. Divest us of our competition and comparison. Yeah. And all the forms that manifests. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. I think it, it changed the way we eat. Yeah. Because we're eating ourselves. Mm-hmm. If everything is one, we eat we're eating ourselves. Thanks. Change the way we eat. It's a new. I think it's a new idea I'm thinking about right now. I thought about like the the oneness between genders and the oneness mm-hmm. <laughs> with the earth, but the idea of bringing God down into mm-hmm. that oneness in this story that God yeah. is part that we that yeah. women are, you know, God like or you know that God is, and it just thinking right now about well what is God besides what's right here in this room and in each of us mm-hmm. and so thinking about just seeing God in, in others yeah thanks for that Becca 
I have a friend who, um, let's connect to this. She doesn't kill any bug. Like, she's never killed a bug. Like, any insect. She's very dear. But for her, she really takes, yeah, this oneness and sort of all of her living is like, there's something that I could learn, or even if I can't learn something, there's something that this creature offers the earth, like that we are so one that like I need to release it back out. So I've been with her so many times and she just like releases all the things. But it is, for me, it's been a really good marker of pausing that not only within humanity, but where, where is God, right? Like even in the dirt that we're picking up and planting flowers. Yeah, it's sort of like the theodicy of the mosquito. Yeah. Like explain this, like why would God create this, yeah. this thing? Yeah. Um, you know, that's caused so much, like real suffering. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Suffering that yeah, we all sure. we go out with our kids to play in this playground, but also um, Yeah, malaria. like malaria, yeah. Um, and so we, we had a, like a mini version of that on the way here where kids are like, we're not going to play outside. We hate those mosquitoes. And then Abe was like, well, why did, why did God even create the mosquito? Why can't we just wipe it all out? And I'm like, you know, I share that, but there's a mysteriousness to the oneness of, like, I don't yeah. know. They're their main source of food for bats. And then bats do this. Yeah. And then, I don't know. Not, here's yeah. the humanity side of my knowledge comes out. Yeah, but for sure. sure. The scientists among those would see, like, what that oneness is. Yeah. Which is not to say we don't pray for this. No, for sure. But it also, right, like these things in creation or even these practices that I will, that I probably don't engage as strongly as I should to help, right, like slow down climate change. These things that we take for granted or we find a nuisance, really. Um, What happens if we start start lessening our emphasis on it being a nuisance and start seeing them as actions and ways of resistance to live into our oneness. Um, And I think that that is an invitation for us all. I hope we'll come back next week as we think more about creation through a lot of music and song. Um, But thanks for diving into Genesis 2. Mona and Charles.
When Ben and I were talking about this song, um, Most of All by Brandon Carlyle, the one we're about to sing, it's about mother and father and the way in which we are all come from one. And so that's part of the reason I think Ben was cool with us playing it. But um, it's about seeing our father and our mother and you know, our mother's words coming out our mouth. And I think that has something to do with the oneness we've been talking about. So try and sing along, I guess, if you can. Thank you. 
Well, thank you for leaning in in such a intense and thoughtful way to this conversation tonight. I am thinking very differently about this text. And as I invite us to this table in light of tonight's conversation, I would invite you to think of this as a family table. Human family, earthling family, gardened ones family. Come here in humility and remembrance that you need, still need, bread, grain, soil. You are made to enjoy fruit, juice, wine. Come here and tell family stories about who we are as gardened ones, about a father that maybe we have not seen in some time but whose face continues to stare back, a mother whose voice somehow finds its way into our mouth, a brother who taught us how to forgive, how to keep a cool head, love the ones you find yourself with, how to fight, find the line between wrong and right. Come to this family ritual, acknowledging that it's a ritual that calls us back to family itself and asks us to acknowledge the richness of all we are and all we are connected to, and to remember again, practice again, what love has been given to us, what love costs, and what love can still offer when we least expect it, if we are willing to give it away. I invite you to this table, as I do every week, to break bread for one another, to break a gluten-free cracker for each other, to pour juice and wine for each other, saying the body and the blood of Christ are shed and broken for you. The love and light of Christ are here on offer for you. That's the table I invite you to tonight. You are most welcome.